0: This is uh, we're continuing our study of uh, Revelation this morning, and we uh, we are getting into the second postcard, the postcard to Smyrna, and uh, this uh, Smyrna church at Smyrna is probably a little less familiar to you than the church at Ephesus, but it was probably established around the same time that the church of Ephesus was established. It's about 35 miles north, going on up the coast on our seven churches tour. Uh, Smyrna is a little bit smaller than Ephesus, but it's still quite a refined city and uh, is considered by many people of the ancient world superior to Ephesus and really all the cities of Asia Minor. In fact, Smyrna was the crown jewel of Asia Minor. While Ephesus had become a trade center, Smyrna actually had the better port. So years later, after the port at uh, Ephesus had all silted in and become essentially unusable, Smyrna uh, was still an active port and, as a matter of fact, is still an active port even today uh, in Turkey. It was a planned community. Unlike most of the ancient cities, this just sort of happened as they happened. Uh Smyrna was a carefully planned community. It was envisioned by none other than Alexander the Great. He had this notion of uh of building Smyrna this way. It uh like Ephesus had theaters, it had aqueducts, it had bath houses, it had a major library, but also its nice wide paved streets were laid out at 90 degree angles. The location of all of the pagan temples in Smyrna were carefully planned so that they were spread evenly throughout the city. And it was built on the slope of Mount Pagas, which is a, a hill it's about 1,250 feet high. And at the top of that, they built this castle-like acropolis. It's, uh, it was uh, built for, for defense. And because of the way that this looked, this going up this hillside with this crown-like structure at the top, it was called the Crown of Smyrna. Its name, the city's name, means myrrh, the same myrrh that was a gift at the birth of Jesus, the same myrrh that was prepared to anoint his body for burial. Uh, it is an aromatic tree gum resin. It is a sap, basically, that dries, is collected, and sometimes ground. It was highly valued in the ancient world for uh, perfume. And, of course, for embalming. Smyrna is also the name of a Greek goddess. And there's some debate as to whether or not the city was named after this goddess or after myrrh. But it's really kind of a chicken-and-the-egg argument because the goddess Smyrna was, in Greek mythology, transformed into a myrrh tree. So the name is really interchangeable. It can mean either one of those things. Several historians uh, state that, it, that myrrh was the chief export of this ancient city, which is kind of unusual because myrrh primarily came from Africa. And even today, it's mostly grown in Africa. There are a couple of other places now where it's been um, uh, farmed. Uh, it, but the, uh, the, the bushy tree that it's taken from primarily uh, grows on the African continent. But even at this point in history, myrrh was valued as a perfume and embalming agent in India and China. And of course, Smyrna would be at the western end of the road, the trade route, out to the east. And so it's highly possible that this product grown in Africa was traded through the city of Smyrna. The city was completely destroyed and later rebuilt. It was wiped out by the Lydians around 600 BC and for three centuries Smyrna existed only as a legend. There were some small encampments but there was no city to speak of. When Alexander comes along 300 years later he recognizes the value of the harbor, the natural defenses that the that the location has and he dreams of rebuilding the city. It was his successors that actually did the work. They completed the reconstruction, and Smyrna is often equated in historical literature with the phoenix, the mythical bird that could rise from the ashes. It was known as the city that died and yet lived. And so, here is the introduction of this letter from the Lord to Smyrna from Revelation 2, 8 and 9, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and last who died and came to life again. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So Lord cites Smyrna's affliction, its poverty, and the slander as the trials the Christians had at Smyrna. Same trials, really, that we talked about Christians having at Ephesus, but in a way, things in Smyrna were probably worse. And they were probably worse because Smyrna may have been, uh, may have originated the cult of Rome. The ancient leaders of Smyrna. Developed an almost prophetic sense of who the next great world power was going to be. And when they saw Rome rising to its uh, apex, they decided that Rome was the horse that you needed to back. And so they decided they were going to cut ties with kings on the peninsula of Asia Minor, and they wanted to be affiliated with Rome. And so in order to send a message to Rome, they built a temple to Rome in order to actually worship the city and the empire. And this is the beginning, we think, of the deification of Rome, deification that, uh, that spread really throughout the Roman Empire, this whole idea that Rome itself and the Roman Empire was a goddess to be, to be worshipped, that goddess— would eventually become Roma, the personification of Rome, and you may have seen her before. Because of all of this, because of that history, Smyrna had this intense loyalty to the imperial cult. And by the time of Domitian, emperor worship had become mandatory. The citizens, like in Ephesus, were not only expected to burn incense when they entered into the marketplace, but they were to publicly state that Caesar is Lord. If they made that public declaration they would be issued a, a piece of paper it was essentially a license and if you had this piece of paper then you could from there on worship whoever you wanted the piece of paper basically said, we have witnessed you worshiping Caesar. Now you can do whatever you like. Free license. They also received a mark. And with this mark, they could do business in Smyrna. Now remember that. That will become very important later on. Now you might be wondering at this point, what about the Jews? We know there were Jews in Smyrna. Uh, And the Jews also rejected polytheism, so how come the Jews don't have the same trouble that the Christians have? We understand that the Jews in uh, Asia Minor are very Hellenistic Jews. That is, they had adopted a lot of Greek culture. And the initial Jewish colonies in Asia Minor were actually settled by the Greeks. They, They brought in about 2,000 Jewish households to settle Asia Minor for them, essentially to help keep the peace. In exchange for doing this, they were granted certain favors of state. And so by the time the Roman Empire rises to preeminence, the Romans allowed the Jews essentially to function as they pleased in exchange for paying a special Judean tax. So they did not have to participate in the imperial worship. They did not have to get the mark, and do all the things that other people had to do, but they did have to pay this Judean tax. It's highly likely that the Christians refused to pay this tax because it was being used to fund the construction of pagan temples. The Jewish community then becomes very nervous about these Christians. They're afraid their nice little setup with Rome is going to be disturbed. And so they consider the Christians troublemakers. In essence, the Hellenistic Jews conspired with Rome against the Christians. And so the Lord calls them a synagogue of Satan. But the Lord's not the first one actually to use that phrase. The Essenes, that sect that sort of separated themselves from the rest of the Jewish world, the Essenes use that same terminology called Hellenistic Jews a synagogue of Satan. And, of course, Jesus confronted the Jews who were seeking to kill him. He called them children of Satan. He even confronted Peter one time, remember, and says, Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because he's doing the will of the enemy without recognizing it. It's likely these Hellenistic Jews who cultivated the rumors about the Christians in the Roman Empire. Since the Christians had these regular love feasts, the rumor was that they were engaging in orgies. Since they called each other brother and sister, the rumor was that these orgies were incestuous. And since they took the body and blood of the Lord in communion at these love feasts, the rumor was that they were also cannibals. So all these rumors are circulating around the empire. In short, the faith of the believers was rewarded with poverty and slander. Woo-hoo! All right? Uh, their lot may have been harder than for the Christians at Ephesus, but apparently they have no failure that the Lord finds worthy of comment in this little postcard message. Despite their faith... Christians at Smyrna are excluded from society. They're shut out of commerce, and they endure the lies of their neighbors. But, as we say, that's not all. By today, and you'll also receive pain and suffering. There's more to come. The Lord says in, uh, in verse 10, Do not be afraid about what you are about to suffer I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Now, you see maybe what I mean when I talk about the encouragement of revelation not being the kind of encouragement that you and I are accustomed to. Someone comes to you, during a period of life where everything is going wrong for you, and says it's about to get worse, but hang in there. We say you're doing that wrong. You know that's that's not that's not that's not helpful. But that's exactly what the message is here. Jesus warned of new tribulation. That word uh, tribulation is here tra- transla- translated as persecution here carries with it the idea of pressure, of a building pressure, mounting weight. There was a very popular torture at this time that basically involved uh, laying a person down on the ground and setting a large stone on them and then continuing to pile stones on their chest so that with each new pressure it becomes harder and harder to breathe until the victim suffocates. Christians in Smyrna must have felt something like that, like it just keeps coming. The pressures, the burdens just keep piling on. And by the way, that 10 is probably not literal. I know a lot of uh, Bible scholars think that it is, that there was a persecution that lasted for 10 days. I find that highly unlikely. Uh, Why a persecution would last for that particular period of time is not clear at all. Uh, But also, so much of the numbers in Revelation have symbolic meaning. The ten is a perfect number, and it's also associated with the law. And I think think the message here is probably that you're going to have some legal troubles that are going to last until they're completed, until they're perfect. As we read this, even today, think the question has to come up, doesn't it? How are these people rich? The Lord says, even though you're poor, you're rich. How how does that work? What does that look like? We say, well, they're rich in faith. Good for us. Honestly, how, how many of us would trade our relative comfort and prosperity for the sort of faith that these people have. We believe that faith in Christ is true wealth. I, I'm just not sure how much we believe it. The ultimate test, the one that we dare not imagine, is the responsibility of being faithful. To the point of death. Now, it's interesting that this city is so closely associated with myrrh. Myrrh, this aromatic spice that we use to prepare the dead for the next life, is the symbol of Smyrna. Myrrh was harvested from these bushy trees by scarring the trunk over and over again would scar the trunk, and the stuff would rise to the surface, and they would collect it, and then they'd have to scar it again because it would have over. Like myrrh, the wealth of the believers at Smyrna would be revealed by the countless scars that they would endure. The Christians at Smyrna had discovered the secret of life. And I'll give you a hint as to what that is. It has nothing to do with ignoring the darkness. I say that because Western civilization has grown extremely adept at ignoring any bad news that happens to be true. To the extent that we've actually come to the point where if reality offends you, if reality bothers you, We will not only actively tell you to embrace your delusion, but to insist that everyone around you embrace your delusion as well. And even Christians today have a tendency to edit the Bible, to leave out the passages that they find uncomfortable. When I was growing up and we all carried around paper Bibles with us, we used to also carry highlighters, highlight passages that we thought were particularly outstanding or important. Now I kind of feel like we would carry around Sharpies. Just kind of mark out that stuff that's, that's less comfortable. The irony is we love bad news. We're fairly addicted to bad news. We constantly fantasize about our own doom. I'll give you an example We have an impressive catalog in our culture of apocalyptic movies. All of these films about disaster and the world that will exist after we've destroyed it all. About the aftermath of war, usually nuclear war, or some terrible outbreak of disease, or an environmental disaster, earthquake, tornadoes, tsunamis the internet movie database has a top 100 list of zombie movies a top 100 meaning there are well over a hundred made and we've identified the top hundred best ones about zombies because we're so obsessed with this picture of what the world's going to look like after we've messed it all up. Now, why do we have all of this? I think it's they speak to our fears. We do have this fear. We have this fear that we will be selfish and prideful and stupid and violent enough to blow each other up. We do have this fear that we've made such a mess of the world that the world is going to bite back and afflict us with pestilence and, and, and disaster. And even zombie movies, I think, kind of have their place because I, I think we have a growing fear that we are becoming soulless creatures who wander through life with no purpose or meaning other than to consume. And our obsession goes well beyond our entertainment. Through our media and through our news sources, We are constantly telling ourselves that the world is about to end. At the same time, ironically, we manage to ignore any of the realities that we don't want to face. Now, you know me probably as a bit of a news hound, get up every morning, go through multiple news sites, read all the news of the day, articles, commentary, what have you, but in the last week, I can't hardly take it. think about that school down in Texas. I think about the horrors afflicted on that little town, a town really not very different from our own. I think about a horror that could have easily just happened here as anywhere else. And you know what? It's not even the ugly reality of the situation that makes me want to turn away. It's all of the distraction that follows it's the influence makers and the community leaders and the politicians and the would-be politicians who uh, have commentary to offer about how we solve problems that they probably had a hand in help creating pretending to have solutions that don't accomplish anything and we'll have endless conversation and endless rhetoric and endless hot air and virtually no one will be talking About the truth, which is that evil has a grasp on the heart of man, and that every time we turn our face from God, we descend into depravity. That's not speculation, that's not maybe, that's the formula, that's how that works. And it works with surprising consistency in every age and in every culture. Mark tells us that when Jesus was on the cross, he was offered vinegar wine with myrrh in it. You ever wonder why that is? In the ancient world, myrrh was also considered an analgesic. In other words, give him this to dull the pain Oddly enough, even the Romans found crucifixion to be such a horrific death that they would offer to dull the pain of its victims. Mark tells us Jesus refused it. He remains clear, even as the depravity of man is winning the day. He decides to remain conscious and clear about all of it. He does not turn his face away. He stares into the darkness. In the same way, Jesus does not numb the message that a new tribulation is coming. He simply tells the people to face it in faith, even to the point of death. And he says, in that you will find your life. And here is the secret. Here is the wealth of the believers at Smyrna. If it is not worth your death, it is not worth your life, whatever you're doing with yourself, whatever you preoccupy yourself with. If it's not worth your death, it's not worth living for. These people have the promise of resurrection. They have the promise of a new life with Christ. But more importantly, if they have to face their death, they know that their life was worth it. Not many people have found that. And as our culture continues to turn inward, I think we probably get further from that. We are more lonely. We are more isolated than we have been before. We spend, on average, more than seven hours a day staring at screens. And of course, the younger you are, the higher the number gets. Our substance abuse, our abuse of drug and alcohol, has increased exponentially. We've seen a 30% increase in drug overdoses. What does all that mean? It means that we are actively avoiding and medicating against the reality of life. We have crafted, as a culture, a life that's so great, nobody actually wants to experience it. And we're so busy trying to make sure that nobody's offended by anything, that we sort of missed the fact that nobody's any happier. Not every Christian will be called to face persecution and death. And for that, we can be grateful. It's fine to be grateful for that. But the one advantage that these Christians have in facing these things, one treasure that they have in facing death, is that they know life in Christ is a worthy life. Now, a little aside To all of our friends in the health and wealth gospel traditions, those snake oil salesmen, sometimes the gospel does not promise you wealth. Sometimes the gospel doesn't even promise you deliverance from the hardship of life. But this is what the Lord says. Verse 11, Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. The victors, he says, will be crowned with life. The imagery of that comes from the sporting games, Greco-Roman sporting games. A crown was given to the race winner, a crown of leaves. The Lord says, I'll give you a crown of life. It'll be more glorious than anything Rome has ever seen. You'll be rewarded with a life that can never be taken away from you again. You may, in fact, face death today, but death will never come for you again. To be victorious, we just have to know the race that we're running. We have to know what matters. We have to know what's worthy. I hope that none of you ever face persecutions like the Christians at Smyrna had to face. I wouldn't hope I wouldn't wish those things on my worst enemies. So I certainly wouldn't wish them on my church family. But mortality is our reality. We will all face the end. And we may face things worse than anything that we've known so far. And so more important than our security, more important than our safety, more important than our comfort, is knowing that we lived for something that was worth dying for.